Hello, everyone, and thank you for sharing some of your time with us. The Reducing Stigma for Improving Maternal Health Virtual Forum is hosted in collaboration through Sync Collective, Avira Research Institute, and through the Great Plains Tribal Leaders Health Board. Funding comes from the National Institute of Health, National Institute on Drug Abuse, and from the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration. Views expressed in this talk are those of the speaker and do not necessarily reflect the views of the hosting organizations, funding organizations, or any organizations that the speakers may be professionally or personally affiliated with. Hi everyone, this is Dr. Arielle Deutsch, uh, and I am really excited to kick off our lecture series, uh, which is focusing on alcohol and substance use in pregnancy, but really the way that stigma uh, shapes the policies and practices related to these issues within South Dakota. So the first thing that we're going to uh, discuss for this uh, talk is a little bit of the epidemiology, the hows and the whys. Uh, so thinking about uh, how many women are using alcohol or substances during pregnancy uh, and how accurate is this understanding um, and how the role of stigma and fear may play into um, these numbers. Uh, then we'll talk a little bit about the characteristics, so demographics of who is using alcohol or substances during pregnancy, uh, and what are the a little bit of the influences or potential reasons behind it. Um, we'll talk about why this is an important issue, so the outcomes, what are the effects of exposure to alcohol or substances during pregnancy on offspring, but also uh, how accurate is our knowledge of this, what is the information or missing information going around about this and how that might be related to how we're actually measuring this. And then finally, um, a little bit on what this entire series is about. Uh, so the stigma, uh, what do women using alcohol or substances during pregnancy experience based on our policies and practices? So in the United States, as we're thinking about national numbers, um, the approximate percentage of women who use alcohol or substances during pregnancy, about 7% of pregnant women smoke cigarettes, and about 3% uh, use e-cigarettes. 10% uh, of women in the United States uh, report drinking alcohol when pregnant, and about 4.5% report binge drinking. Um, about 7% of pregnant women report using marijuana, um, and 7% also report prescription opioid use during pregnancy. And this is about 1% um, for non-prescribed opioids. So um, that's about 20% of all of pregnant women who use prescription opioids reporting that the opioids that they use are not prescribed to them. 1% of pregnant women in the United States report using prescription stimulants. So that would be, for instance, your ADHD medications like Ritalin, Adderall. Um, and less than 1% of women in the United States uh, report using methamphetamine during pregnancy. Um, and even less is known about other potentially harmful prescription drugs. Uh, so sedatives like benzodiazepines or barbiturates, Valium, Xanax. Um, or non-prescription opioid use like heroin. Uh, it's important to know that uh, polysubstance use or co-use using two different substances uh, can be common. Uh, so for example, among women who report drinking alcohol while pregnant, uh, about 40% of them will report that they are using another substance. 
Um, and uh, use tends to be highest in the first trimester, uh, in part because many people may not know that they're pregnant. Uh, and the other thing I want to say, I use the word report a lot. It doesn't mean like a police report. It's just a report like women say that they use, they answer this question on a survey. Um, speaking of which, uh, a note about the data that I'm going to talk about. We're going to use mostly data uh, from South Dakota Pregnancy Risk Assessment Monitoring System, or PRAMS. Uh, the PRAMS is a yearly survey project uh, that is a collaboration between state health departments and the CDC. Uh, and this information is important because this really helps us understand a little bit better um, about the way that uh, some babies may be born healthy or others may not be born healthy in individual states. And then we can use this information to uh, really help us make decisions on how we can improve the health and wellness for all. So each year, a random sample of South Dakotans who deliver a live-born infant are selected from birth certificate files to complete a survey. Um, and the most recent data that we're going to talk about comes from the 2019 PRAMS. Uh, we're also going to use a little bit of other data, uh, data uh, for example, uh, the Safe Passage study, and that'll be discussed a little bit later. So when we talk about use during pregnancy by drugs, uh, we know that um, in South Dakota, there really hasn't been a change in uh, smoking during pregnancy. Uh, so about 24% uh, of, 23, 24% of women uh, in 2017 to 19 will report smoking uh, three months before pregnancy. And about 10% of women will report smoking uh, the last three months of pregnancy. And this hasn't changed at all. Uh, However, there has been a uh, slight increase in alcohol use. So uh, more women uh, are reporting that they are drinking three months before pregnancy. Remember, drinking and or using any sort of substance, maybe not necessarily knowing that they're pregnant. That's why thinking about their use prior to pregnancy can be important. Um, and so we see that from 2017 to 2019, uh, while to us, uh, 63% of women were reporting drinking uh, before pregnancy in 2017. 67% are reporting that they're drinking three months uh, before pregnancy in 2019. And this has been uh, accompanied by a little increase in uh, the reports of drinking the last three months of pregnancy. So from 2017 to 2019, uh, the number the percentage of women who've reported drinking the last three months of pregnancy has been increased from eight percent to about eleven percent. Binge drinking uh, is a little bit different also. Uh, so when we say binge drinking, what we mean uh, for women is drinking four or more standard alcohol drinks in one drinking occasion. So that's about uh, a shot of hard liquor or uh, 12 ounces of beer. Um, and there's actually been quite a big increase uh, from 2017 to 19 in the number or the percentage of women who are reporting in South Dakota that they're drinking, binge drinking three months before pregnancy. So in 2017, it was 19%. In 2019, it was 26%. Um, and this is, seems to be uh, related to a little increase. It's difficult because PRAMS didn't actually ask about binge drinking in the last three months of pregnancy. But at least when it comes to drinking at least one drink per week, 
there's been an increase from three to four percent between 2018 and 2019. The last time that PRAMS actually did uh, assess binge drinking was 2016, uh, and about one percent of women reported binge drinking uh, the last three months of pregnancy in 2016. But going to this a little bit further, uh, especially because such a high percentage of women report uh, drinking before uh, getting pregnant, three months before pregnancy, uh, we'll go into the Safe Passage study, uh, which collected information from 4,877 South Dakota pregnant women uh, between 2006 and 2017. Uh, and this looked at uh, alcohol use in each trimester. So. Uh, as you can see, the actual rate of drinking or binge drinking drops pretty sharply from 54% of women reporting uh, any drinking during the first trimester, 30% reporting binge drinking in the first trimester, to in the second trimester, 5% of women reporting uh, any drinking and less than 1% reporting binge drinking in the second trimester. And this continues to taper off to uh, 3% and 0.1% uh, for any drinking and binge drinking in the third trimester. So uh, there is a pretty sharp decline, but we still do see that possibly that window where women aren't necessarily, and knowing that they're pregnant, um, having a, a pretty high rate of alcohol use in the first trimester. Let's talk a little bit about illicit substances. Um, and so here, when we talk about illicit, uh, the PRAM study considers illicit substances to be marijuana, uh, methadone, heroin, amphetamines, cocaine, tranquilizers, hallucinogens, or sniffing gasoline. Um, and so we're really talking about uh, illegal drugs or access to uh, prescription drugs that are not actually prescri being prescribed to you. Um, Although we don't see an actual change in illicit drug use in the month, not three months, in the month before pregnancy, it's hovering at about 8%, 8-ish, 8.5. Um, we do see a increase in the number or the percentage of women who are reporting uh, using illicit drugs at any point during the pregnancy from 3% in 2017 to 5% in 2019. Uh, and this trend is actually uh, in South Dakota reflects a nationwide trend in increase in illicit drug use um, during pregnancy. When we look, break it down by substance, uh, we see that there's been uh, a little bit of a change in marijuana use, and the one month before pregnancy, it declined a bit uh, from 7.6% uh, to 6.9% in 2017, 2019, um, and it, it goes up and down a little bit uh, in marijuana use during pregnancy from 3 to 4%. Uh, from 2017-2019. So uh, a little bit of a change in between the three years. When we look at prescription opioids, um, and now this didn't necessarily discern between uh, opioids that were prescribed to someone or opioids that were not prescribed to someone, uh, we see that uh, women are reporting less prescription opioid use one month before pregnancy. Um, in from 2017 to 2019, so from 5 to 3%. Uh, but the rate of uh, prescription opioid use at all during pregnancy 
uh, is a little more stable, hovering around three to four percent between these years. Methamphetamine use, uh, it wasn't really assessed during pregnancy uh, in 2017, so we're not really seeing uh, change uh, overall, but we do see that uh, the number, the percentage of women who use methamphetamines one month before pregnancy has remained pretty stable, around 2%, um, and it's decreased just a little bit uh, between 2018 and 2019 during pregnancy from 2% to 1.4%. So I just threw a whole bunch of numbers uh, out, and um, when we think about these numbers, we have to think about how accurate are these numbers? Um, it's important to note that some of these statistics don't reflect substance use during the entirety of pregnancy, like the smoking statistics. Um, and also these numbers may not be 100% accurate. And there's a few different reasons for that. Uh, as we've discussed, knowledge of pregnancy is important. Um, most women in the PRAM study report they did not intend to get pregnant at the time that they got pregnant, 57%. Of those women, the 57% of women, more than half were not using birth control. So about one third of the women uh, in the PRAM study in 2019 weren't expecting a pregnancy and may not necessarily have been aware that they had gotten pregnant initially, um, which means that when they actually thought they were pregnant and asking, did you use substances, uh, smoke or drink during this pregnancy, they may not know the exact dates in terms of lining up. Um, so when we think about who is more likely to smoke or drink or use substances, um, it is people who actually were not intending to get pregnant. The other big thing is um, they may have been afraid to be honest. Even though PRAMS is uh, not a survey that actually uses your name and your information, um, women who drink or smoke or use substances can feel stigmatized for using these substances. Uh, and they may be afraid to disclose this information. Uh, it's important to note that in South Dakota, this information does, it can have substantial consequences for pregnant women. Uh, and these are issues that we are going to be exploring in later talks. Um, this is reflected when we look at numbers that talk about fear of being reported for using alcohol or drugs during pregnancy. Uh, so about 7% of women in 2019 reported that fear, well, they said that fear of being reported, so actually being reported uh, by uh, medical staff uh, to uh, the justice institution or child welfare institution, uh, about 7% of women were afraid that they would be reported, and this was a barrier to attend prenatal care visits. Uh, and that this also impacted their prenatal care visits so that mothers who didn't start prenatal care as early as they wanted were more likely to report using tobacco or illicit drugs. So we're already seeing that that fear um, of repercussions may not only be impacting the care that you get, but also may be impacting the actual numbers. 
So let's talk a little bit about who uh, may be uh, using substance, alcohol or tobacco or substances during pregnancy. So mothers who smoked in the last three months of pregnancy, uh, at least in 2019, were more likely to be indigenous, to have an annual income of less than $16,000, to have not finished high school, to be unmarried, and to live in central South Dakota. Um, you're going to see a little bit of difference uh, in terms of alcohol. So mothers who used alcohol in the last three months during pregnancy were more likely uh, to be above 35 years old, but they were similar in terms of race, education, socioeconomic status, income, and marital status. Um, but when we probed this a little longer, because we're only talking about any alcohol, um, PRAMS doesn't account for first or second trimester use, so let's turn to safe passage, and let's also think, turn to safe passage when we're talking about binge drinking. Um, so what safe passage study has uh, found out that women who drink any alcohol during pregnancy and drink alcohol more frequently are more likely to be older and white, have a higher education, higher household income, have less children, and have more prenatal care. But women who binge drink during pregnancy are more likely to be indigenous, younger, have a lower education and household income, have more children, and have less prenatal care. So pregnant women who drink or drink more frequently but drink less each time are more likely to be older, educated, have a higher socioeconomic status, and be white. Women who abstain from drinking or who binge drink but drink less frequently are more likely to be younger, less educated, lower socioeconomic status, and indigenous. So already we're really starting to see that there are actually nuances when we're thinking about these issues and we can't necessarily paint every single person with a very broad brush. Let's go in a little bit into the illicit substances. Um, so pregnant women who used any illicit substances during pregnancy uh, were more likely to be indigenous, less than 20 years old, have not finished high school or a high, have a high school diploma, have an annual income of less than 16,000 and be unmarried. Uh, now this doesn't necessarily break down by uh, the type of substance, uh, nor does it actually look at women who use prescrip prescription drugs who are prescribed, uh, so not illicit. Um, medications that are prescribed by a doctor, such as opioids, are starting to get more attention, but there's little known about the demographics or rates related to pregnant women who take uh, prescription amphetamine stimulants, barbiturates, benzodiazepines, um, as well as those who uh, take them, that, but they are prescribed. Um, when we look a little bit at the national data, what this might look like, um, pregnant women who use prescription opioids, even those that are prescribed to them, are more likely to be in rural areas, uh, have lower socioeconomic status and be white. Um, and it's also important to note that a proportion of women who co-use prescription medications, such as both opioids and sedatives, um, it makes it more difficult to discern who may be using a specific drug or multiple drugs. Uh, so because there's a lot of complexity, especially when we're thinking about prescription drugs and those who are using it 
who have been prescribed and those who have not been prescribed. And because we're not making those distinctions or really thinking about those nuances, it's a little bit harder to discern uh, the demographics and who might be using. However, it's also important not just to think about basic demographics and characteristics, but really to get into what might be uh, going on in terms of the reason that uh, women may be using uh, tobacco or alcohol or substances. Um, so when we look at the PRAMS data, pregnant women in South Dakota who smoked in the last three months of pregnancy or who used illicit drugs were more likely to experience emotional abuse from partners. Uh, they were more likely to have experienced at least four adverse childhood experiences. Um, and they were more likely to experience uh, other co-occurring issues within pregnancy like gestational diabetes or hypertension or prenatal depression. Um, for those who are unclear about what adverse childhood experiences are, um, for the ones in PRAMS, this includes physical, sexual, or emotional abuse, uh, physical or emotional neglect, uh, household substance abuse, parental divorce or separation, uh, household mental illness. If your mother was treated violently or if you had a member of your household who was incarcerated. And this is asking about these experiences, uh, usually before the age of 18. So what we're seeing is that uh, women who are smoking or using illicit drugs um, may be dealing with uh, more unresolved trauma and current uh, trauma and abuse, as well as dealing with other uh, emotional or physical issues. Um, now, it's important to note these factors aren't necessarily, weren't seen for pregnant women who reported drinking during the last three months of pregnancy, um, but uh, overall research indicates that pregnant women who binge drink, smoke cigarettes, or use illicit drugs uh, are more likely to have had an unintended pregnancy uh, and are less likely to know they're pregnant, um, are more likely to have experienced or are currently experiencing domestic violence or abuse, uh, and they are more likely to have experienced childhood trauma or adverse experiences. When we think about the way that these things might come together, a good model is to consider what is called the SAVA syndemic. So we know that there is a co-occurring relationship between alcohol or substance use, intimate partner uh, or domestic violence, and unintended pregnancy, so lower birth control use. Uh, violence is more likely to happen in a relationship on drinking days, uh, with, when at least one of the partners is drinking or using drugs, um, although not all drugs, uh, so alcohol or stimulants are the big culprits. Uh, and women will also use alcohol or substances as a coping mechanism to uh, the long-term experience violence, uh, usually is a, a numbing uh, agent for trauma that you might feel. Um, the relationship between uh, intimate partner or domestic violence and unprotected sex uh, is explained by violent partners are more likely to make decisions about reproductive choices, like using birth control or when to have sex. Um, and they may also force partners to use alcohols or substances um, to coerce them into non-consensual sex. And so we know that the unprotected sex can increase the risk of unintended pregnancy. Within violent relationships, pregnancy 
is a hard and vulnerable time for women. Uh, they may be less likely to leave partners, uh, and they actually may experience higher rates of violence when they are pregnant. Uh, so women may continue to use substances during this time that they are experiencing this violence, and they are highly vulnerable. When we think about just these interacting factors, it's also important to remember that this is occurring a lot of time in contexts where women have less economic resources and they have less access and opportunity to get help. We also know that uh, in violent relationships, women are often isolated from others, which also reduces their ability to receive help or support. And finally, other contributors such as sexual or human trafficking victimization also contribute to this co-occurring uh, cluster of factors. So what we're seeing here is a lot of different things that are all culminating together uh, related to trauma, uh, related to uh, lack of ability to uh, access resources or help, um, and a need to somehow treat trauma that you experience through things like drugs and alcohol use, which uh, then creates a symptom, and the symptom being drug or alcohol use in pregnancy. Now, it's important to note that this does not explain or describe every instance of alcohol or substance exposed pregnancy. Uh, about 7% of pregnant women in South Dakota report emotional abuse during pregnancy, according to the PAMS data. 5% of women say, uh, say their partner tried to control daily activities. 4% were threatened or made to feel unsafe. 3% were frightened for their or their family's safety. And about 2% of women report physical abuse during pregnancy, uh, and 3% report physical abuse before pregnancy as well. Uh, and 2% of women also report sexual abuse during pregnancy. And similar to uh, the basic demographics that we see uh, related to use, women were more likely to report these abusive events if they were indigenous, younger, had lower education and annual household income, and were unmarried. Um, it's also important to note that there were women who reported abuse specifically during pregnancy, not even both and after pregnancy, but that pregnancy actually exacerbated or uh, facilitated violence. So what we're seeing is that this may be a powerful mechanism that may be driving uh, some of the alcohol and substance exposed pregnancy that we see. But this is not the only reason. Um, as evidenced uh, by more people using before pregnancy, not knowing you're pregnant, finding out you're pregnant, and quitting a substance takes time. Uh, there's also a lot of conflicting information about alcohol and substance exposed pregnancy in terms of effects. Um, so that although most women in South Dakota who receive prenatal care discuss smoking or drinking alcohol, use of prescription medication and drugs, there's a lot of diversity in a practitioner's knowledge about the effects of tobacco, alcohol, and drug use on offspring. Um, so practitioners may not know or feel qualified to provide resources or help for women who discuss use. And this makes it more difficult for women to receive help. So let's talk a little bit about what these outcomes actually are. Uh, we know that for tobacco during development, uh, tobacco can, uh, use can impact the development of uh, infant lungs and brain. 
So think about carbon monoxide and tobacco smoke reduces oxygen. Um, and that obviously re that reduction of oxygen can impact uh, brain development. We also know chemicals in tobacco smoke can impact development of unborn children. For birth outcomes, uh, one in five children born to smoking mothers has low birth rate and there's increased risk of preterm delivery and miscarriage. Uh, and after birth, uh, women who smoke will have children who are more likely to die from sudden infant death syndrome. Uh, and there are, can be long-term impacts of cognitive, emotional, and behavioral difficulties in childhood. Uh, for alcohol, uh, there is, which has probably gotten the most attention in terms of the impact on child and infant development. We know that during development, there can be substantial impact on mental and physical development. And that's reflected uh, in fetal alcohol syndrome disorder. So we also know during birth, there's higher risk of low birth rate and preterm birth. And after birth, uh, infants who have been exposed in utero uh, to alcohol can have substantial neurobehavioral deficits. So more difficulties with complex problem solving, communication, or regulating behavior and emotions. Uh, they also have poor physical coordination and higher risk of emotional or behavior disorders. Now, a lot of people think about the very visible um, signs or symptoms of fetal alcohol syndrome disorder, uh, like facial structure, uh, but it can be hard to diagnose and it's not always visible in many children. So misdiagnoses or undiagnosed uh, cases of FASD uh, can mean up to 10% of children um, are impacted by alcohol. And research has indicated that um, we actually may see uh, fetal alcohol syndrome uh, disorder rates uh, as high as 10% in our population. Um, and this misdiagnosed or undiagnosis can also happen because the behavioral um, symptoms of FASD can look similar to other developmental conditions, such as autism or attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. When we think about marijuana, um, we also see that during development, marijuana can have potential impact on the development of the brain, um, and there is higher risk of miscarriage and stillbirth, uh, higher risk of preterm birth and birth weight. And there can be a potential impact on cognitive abilities and behavior. Now, I say potential. Uh, and the reason for this is a lot of research actually kind of outdated uh, in thinking about the, in knowing the effects of marijuana use. And that's because there's actually very big differences in terms of potency. Uh, a lot of the research from like the 1980s isn't really relevant uh, when a lot of the strains of marijuana today or products of marijuana have a higher THC potency. So we don't want to say definitively what the effects are, but we do know that there are relationships between these issues and marijuana use. Um, when we look at opioids, um, we need to be aware that both use and withdrawal can have impacts. Um, so detoxification and withdrawal, whether it is with the mother, whether it is with an infant in utero, or whether it is with a newborn, these all need to be addressed very carefully because it can be dangerous. Um, otherwise, we know that during development, opioids impact development of heart and lungs and see some congenital heart defects. 
birth outcomes, obviously, one of the biggest things is that we see neonatal abstinence syndrome. The infant needs to withdraw, which can be a very dangerous time. Uh, but otherwise, there's also a higher risk of preterm birth and lower birth rate. And after birth, there is a higher likelihood of sudden infant death syndrome. And similar to some of the other uh, substance uh, use impacts, we see more difficulty reaching developmental milestones. So impacts with uh, your brain, cognitive functioning, uh, and your motor or the way your physical abilities. Uh, switching to methamphetamine and stimulants, um, we see that during developments, there is a impact on heart and brain. Again, higher rates of prematurity and lower birth rate. And again, there's difficulties with physical coordination, cognitive development, and behavior regulation. It's difficult to know specifics. I rattled off a bunch of things that these substances may be related to these things. And in some cases, we know pretty well, like with fetal alcohol syndrome disorder. But otherwise, we're, it's a little bit more difficult to say that this amount of substance and this actual substance will cause this issue. Um, and why is that? Well, the outcomes aren't always a sure thing. Uh, you can use substances in pregnancy and there can be pretty much no negative visible or seemingly effects whatsoever. Um, the important thing is that we know it's a gamble. But why is it hard to know these things in more exact ways? Well, there's a few different reasons. Uh, the first is measurement. Uh, and here I actually have a comparison between on the bottom what is considered that standard drink. So uh, 12 ounces of beer, uh, nine ounces of malt, malt liquor, uh, five ounces of table wine, or uh, 1.5 ounces of uh, hard liquor. Um, so and then I have uh, what I've used in my own research, which is a little bit more of a nuanced understanding of what a standard drink might be if you convert it to say a 16 ounce beer uh, or a wine bottle. Uh, because we know that when you're drinking alcohol, or really when you're using any drug, you're not really paying attention to the exact amount, except possibly cigarettes. Uh, it's hard to measure the exact amount someone uses at a specific time, especially when we're asking people to remember the past. Um, and it gets harder as there's more variety in the types of the substances. Um, and there's no standard amounts for many illicit drugs. You don't have a standard amount of, say, methamphetamine. Um, and everyone can use a different amount of marijuana. Um, and as I show here, even standard amounts can be difficult to measure. It's also hard to measure because we know substance use influences will change over pregnancy as the infant develops. We think about the highest uh, time period of use in uh, the first trimester, which is when a baby is developing the most critical components of their body, like their central nervous system and their brain. Uh, this is a pretty important time. Uh, and so if you use a little bit or a lot during this time period versus uh, a different amount uh, in a second or third trimester, there's going to be differences. And we're still not necessarily very good at tracking both the amount and the time in our research. Another issue is polysubstance use. Like I said before, using more than one substance. Um, 
also uh, for one one study reports that 40% of women who drink during pregnancy will use another substance. Uh, we know that polysubstance use increases risk of negative outcomes. Uh, so, for example, research that uh, used the Safe Passage study has indicated that although both tobacco and alcohol use can be associated with higher rates of a sudden infant death syndrome, when you use both tobacco and alcohol, there's an even greater risk. So when we think about the impact of one versus the other versus both, then you get a little more uh, complex with looking or thinking about exact outcomes. Finally, we cannot uh, talk about this without considering other issues, explanations, or influences for birth outcomes. We know that stress, physical trauma, poor living conditions, nutrition, and access to healthcare all play roles in prenatal development. And as we saw with the SAWA model, these things can co-occur. It's hard to untangle or isolate specific things that may be influential. So when you think about the people who may be most in need of help, who are experiencing possibly the hardest issues, and these individuals may also be using substances during pregnancy, it's hard to specifically say this is the issue or this is the problem without considering the context that also play a large role in infant and maternal health. Finally, it's difficult to find out the answers when people are afraid to talk about the topic. We really do want to understand the impact of tobacco, alcohol, or substance use on outcomes, the ways that we can help pregnant women, mothers, and children who are impacted by these issues, and how to prevent these issues. But it's difficult because the topic carries a lot of stigma. We know from research that popular strategies for reducing these issues focus on punishment and shame. So criticizing pregnant women as bad mothers or punishing them using social uh, service institutions like child welfare or justice. We also know that these strategies are not only popular, but they are also ineffective. The experiences of punishment and shame and the fear of these experiences reduce women's abilities and access to receive support, care, and help, as we discussed in that women when they are afraid of being reported on, will be less likely to get even basic prenatal care. And these experiences are often compounded by the biases people have of what tobacco, alcohol, or substance use in pregnancy may look like. Assumptions based on race or socioeconomic status exacerbate negative experiences that many pregnant women, both those who may or may not have used substances, face in receiving care. And we know this is especially true for pregnant women who are indigenous or who are lower socioeconomic status. So when we think about not just how many or who is using, but the broader context in why, as well as all of the other factors that we know are important in this, that we are neglecting by simply focusing on this issue in isolation. It's not effective. 
and better action towards health related to pregnant women, children, families, and communities. It requires destigmatizing these issues and considering the broader contexts in which they exist. I'm really excited to have all of you continue on this journey as we talk about these issues in more detail. And thank you so much for listening. Be good to each other, be healthy, be safe. Thank you. Hey everyone, thanks for listening to our series. If you're interested in learning a little bit more about the SYNC Collaborative, then you can check us out on Facebook at Project SYNC, that's S-Y-N-C-H. And if you're interested in participating in a couple of our projects, you can email us at projectsync at avira.org, or you can call or text us at 605-667-0035. The Great Plains Tribal Leaders Health Board has some great information and resources available. If you're interested in knowing a little bit more about tribal treatment resource, uh, you can check out their tribal treatment services resource guide on their website at bhr dot gtchb dot org and if you're interested in knowing about the programs for maternal and child health you can email Nora Bosom N-O-R-A dot B-O-S-E-M at gtchb dot org or call 605-721-1922. If you're interested in knowing more about the tribal opioid response you can email Stacy Eagle Elk at staci.eagleelk at gptchb.org or call at 605-721-0327. For more resources about substance use or addiction centers in South Dakota, you can check out the addictionresource.net at Best Drug Rehab Centers in South Dakota or for general help, you can call across the state of South Dakota, the 221 Helpline Helpline Center. Uh, Thank you all again for listening and please be compassionate to yourselves and each other. Thank you.